Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Regen, if we haven't met. My name is Aaron, and now you have met me, but I have still not met you. Uh, if this is your first time here, we have a gift for you in the back. We've got some little coffee mugs. I think there might be some sunglasses. Also back there, you can find a hay card. You fill it out, and then you will start getting emails from us so that you know what's going on. So even if it's not your first time, but if you'd like to know what is going on around here, sign up for one of those. Uh, while you are still getting settled and have not yet put your phone on silent, you can go ahead and check into Facebook. Every time you do that, it's going to generate a donation to our very own Candace Cooper, who is going off into the mission field shortly. So um, we definitely want to do that. Final announcement, student circle. This is our last week meeting in our current format. Um, next week we will be starting, we will be kicking off a new curriculum called Youth Alpha um, that we are super excited about. <coughs> so excited about. Um, yeah, we are. We are. Hey. Um, so next week we are going to Extreme Air Trampoline Park. It's going to be awesome. It is uh, going to be happening at 6 o'clock. We will meet there if you need a ride. Um, just find one of us. We'll sort that out for you. Uh, it costs $15, and there will be pizza provided. Uh, Joey is going to come and pray for our offering, and I'm going to pass around these little buckets. Hey guys. Hi. So, uh, yeah, what is any of this without Jesus, right? You know? So let's just take a second and talk to him. Hey Lord. Good morning. Thanks for this day. Thanks for all these beautiful faces. Thanks for everything that you're doing in all of our lives, the stuff that we're aware of and the stuff that is still a, going to be a surprise. God, I just thank you for this moment um, to just give in um, to what you're doing and to sow um, where you've called us to sow um, and you've promised that we'll reap harvest. And uh, it's what you're doing. So thank you so much for the chance to be involved in what you're doing. In your name, amen. From the very moment that we were conceived, you have been our companion. There is nowhere that we can go to escape your presence, and that is a good thing, Lord. And so make yourself plain to us and clear to us this morning as we offer our hearts and our lives to you again. Even in the midst of heartbreak and sorrow and lament, we bring you ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Kids can go back with uh, Kayla and Jordan. So they're hanging out back there. I noticed the slow pace that, that's being, yes, very good. Wow. Uh, a couple things. Um, Glad that you're here. My name's Kyle. I, I get to be one of the pastors here and uh, super thankful that you're here this morning. Um, after church, we're having lunch with our circle leaders. Uh, circles will come to an end 
Are you, is Wednesday ending this week? Wednesday's ending this week, Tuesday's already done those. So we're kind of recounting that. And the reason I'm bringing this up to you is some of you will be tapped or asked to lead circles next year, so buckle down. Um, and then next year, we would like to see more people involved in circles, so we're going to be working on that. And so as you start making fall plans, start thinking now about having an evening in your week free where you're giving that to Jesus. So um, we're asking for a morning and an evening, so that's what we're looking for. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 13. Uh, by the way, too, Thursday night at 7 is our night of prayer where we're kind of praying over the next ministry year. Um, as I said last week, some people don't like to come to these things because they don't like to pray out loud. And my response to that is that's okay, but eventually you have to outgrow that. So this may be an opportunity. So you will be asked to pray out loud in some way, shape, or form, or at least be in a small group where people are praying out loud. So watch out for that. And uh, other than that, we're going to jump right in. So Thursday night at 7, we'll pray and see what the Lord does about next year. I want to start again with this quote by Frederick Beekner. It's a little long, but it helps us frame where we're going. He says, whether your faith is that there is a God or that there is not a God, if you don't have any doubts, you are either kidding, you are either kidding yourself or asleep. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. There are two principal kinds of doubt, one of the head and the other of the stomach. In my head, there is almost nothing I can't doubt when the fit is upon me. Oh, no, you're still there because it's not done until 12.15. Okay, good conversation. Great. Okay, let's start again. There are two principal kinds of doubt. Randy's responsible for going and getting our lunch, which is, you know, about as important as the sermon. So there are two principal kinds of doubt, one of the head and the other of the stomach. In my head, there is almost nothing I can't doubt when the fit is upon me. For example, the divinity of Christ, the efficacy of the sacraments, the significance of the church, the existence of God. But even when I am at my most skeptical, I go on with my life as though nothing untoward has happened. He says, I have never experienced stomach doubt, but I think that Jesus did. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I don't think he was raising a theological issue any more than he was quoting Psalm 22. I think he had looked into the abyss itself and found there a darkness that spiritually viscerally, totally engulfed him. I think God allows that kind of darkness only to happen to God's saints. The rest of us aren't up to doubting that way or maybe believing that way either. When our faith is strongest, we believe with our hearts as well as our heads, but only at a few rare moments, I think, do we feel in our stomachs what it must be like to be engulfed by light. Here's our assertion in today and in this series, God, uh, that, that, that doubt is a natural and normal part of walking by faith with a God who is beyond our understanding. Doubt is a natural and normal part of walking by faith with a God who is beyond our understanding. Doubts are the messengers of the living one to the honest. Faith is not about clinging to psychological certainty but about genuine, authentic covenant relationship with a God who has bound himself to us by his own promises. It's kind of a long paragraph. Doubt is a natural, normal part of walking with a God by faith who is beyond our understanding. Doubt are messengers. Doubts are messengers of the living one to the honest. 
Faith is not about psychological certainty, but about genuine, authentic relationship with a God who has bound himself to us in a covenant by his own promises. Now, why is this important? This is important because everyone doubts. This is important because everyone doubts. And the question isn't whether or not someone experiences doubt. The question is whether or not they are honest about their experiences of doubt. And many of us have come to believe that we're not allowed to be honest about our doubt at church, whether it's doubts of the head or doubt of the stomach. And so when we doubt, we feel like we're left with two options. One is if this isn't a place that I'm allowed to doubt and I'm doubting, I must have to leave. And so I think last week or the week before, we looked at the statistics of people 30 and under, but of all generations who are fleeing the church because they have questions that are really honest and really good, but questions that aren't being answered. So either we leave because doubt's not allowed, or we shove our doubt so deep down inside of us and plaster on a happy face and a happy mask at church saying over and over again to ourselves, God doesn't want me to doubt. God doesn't want me to be angry. And in the process of stuffing our feelings of doubt down, we begin to engage with God and have a relationship with God that is based on being fake. There are going to be moments in your life when you experience a darkness that spiritually and viscerally and totally engulfs you but we have victory in Jesus. I don't care. You do, but there are going to be moments when you experience a darkness that spiritually and viscerally and totally engulfs you. And when that happens, you're going to have doubt. You're going to have doubt of the stomach. We're going to talk about doubts of the head in a couple of weeks. After the death of a loved one, after the death of a child, in the midst of an ongoing battle with anxiety or depression or another mental disorder, in the midst of infertility, in the midst of cancer, in the midst of a marriage that all of a sudden is on the rocks and on life support, you are going to experience a darkness that totally and spiritually and viscerally engulfs you. And in the 21st century church, we do not have good language for talking with God when that happens. We don't have good language for talking with God when this happens because most of our music is very, very, very optimistic. All of this, this removal of doubt as something normal in our life with Jesus, people leaving the church because of doubt, Christians saying, I know I'm not supposed to be mad at God. I know I'm not supposed to have doubts. And the number of people engaging in fake relationship with God can all be connected to the loss of lament, lament in our public life as the people of Jesus. So turn with me, if you haven't, to Psalm 13, and let me tell you about one of my favorite genres of Scripture. Genres of Scripture. This, this leads me to an important reminder, and maybe you're hearing it for the first time. The Bible is actually a library. The Bible is actually a library of 66 individual books telling one long story that points to Jesus. It's written across a few thousand years by a few dozen authors. In very different cultural contexts, the Greco-Roman world, an ancient Israelite world, the ancient Near East, the classical world. It's written in multiple different cities. It's written in multiple different places. And in this library, like any library, there are different kinds of books. There's history. 
There's apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic is a fancy word that means end of the world kind of literature. There's prophecy, there's wisdom literature, and of course there's poetry. And again, all of these genres are why, first of all, when you start reading the Bible, it feels like it's a very schizophrenic document because you start reading in one place and it feels like a certain way. You start reading in another and it sounds like you're reading two different books. Well, you are, right? But all of this points to one person. It points to Jesus. The longest collection of poetry in the Bible is found in the book of Psalms. It's the longest book in the Bible. It's got 150, at least by chapter, it's got 150 chapters, 150 individual poems and songs. The book of Psalms was the ancient Israelite prayer book. It was their hymn book. These are the songs that they sang in worship. These are the songs that they sang in worship. These are the songs that they pr- they prayed. And in this 150 individual, 150 psalms, this collection of 150 poems, there's even different genres of poems in that 150. There are, uh, there are royal psalms, songs about the king. There are uh, psalms of ascent, psalms that they sang while they were going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in, on a mountain in Israel, present day and back then. And, and so everything was lower than it. So if you went to Jerusalem, you went up to Jerusalem. So Psalms of Ascent, there are Psalms of Thanksgiving. There are Psalms of Praise. There's priestly Psalms. And then there are this category of lament Psalms, Psalms about sad things. John Calvin says that the Psalms are the mirror to the soul, the mirror to the soul, because they are the most they have the largest emotional vocabulary of any place in scripture. And in the midst of all this are these psalms of lament. Well, what is a lament psalm? This is not the most academic of definitions, uh, but it is one of my favorite things to talk about, so I'm really excited about today. Lament psalms are songs and prayers of people who feel forgotten by God. They are of people who have feel ignored and overlooked by God. They feel defeated by an enemy. They are brutally honest. They are visceral. They are passionate prayers. They are people up in God's face. They are angry. They are ticked. They are profoundly personal. They are profoundly personal prayers of defeat and struggle and disappointment. And the thing is about the Psalms is that they are everywhere. There are 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms. There are 150 of them, and 58 are lament psalms. Over one-third, math nerds, uh, over one-third of the psalms in the, in the Psalter are lament psalms. One-third of the songs that Israel sang, one-third of the prayers that Israel prayed are sad. One-third. Old Testament scholars note that even in the overall arc of 150 psalms, the, 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 the laments are kind of front-loaded into the beginning of the book. So it's almost like the whole Psalter itself acts like a lament. In lament psalms, it starts with complaint and plea and anger and intensity and moves to praise. And we see the whole Psalter itself doing that. We see all 150 psalms having that kind of arc. Super interesting. So I want us today to get a kind of grip on what a lament psalm looks like and how they function. We're going to kind of engage our biblical studies brain. And the reason we're doing this is because I want us to have language to copy and paste into our souls and into our hearts and into our minds when things go wrong. I want to give you permission 
to get mad at God. I want to give you permission to get up in God's face, and I want to show you how the Bible does that. This week we're looking at Psalm 13. Next week we're looking at the book of Habakkuk, which is an Old Testament prophet who also basically writes a lament. It's very interesting. So Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament scholar, has done a lot of work on lament, and he talks about the overall structure of lament psalms being one of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Have any of you ever felt disoriented in your life before? Okay, Joey was quick. Um, everybody else is living a perfect Christian life. You could go find another church, please. Thank you, because the rest of us are having a hard time. Um, uh, so... We all have this, know this feeling of being oriented and understanding how life works. We have this sense of being settled in place, and then something happens. The phone rings. We watch the news. Something happens that disorients us. Some of the lament psalms that's super interesting are about personal experiences of suffering and affliction. Some of the lament psalms are just about how God isn't, like the world isn't fair. It's like they turned, like the ancient Israelites turned on Fox News or turned on CNN, depending on how you vote. And, 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 and they saw the bad news going on in the world, and it disoriented them. How can, how can this do it? Lament Psalms try to answer the question often, how does a good God exist in a bad world? It's interesting. How does a good God rule over a bad world? But what's interesting is they, as they move from orientation to disorientation, there's this move of plea and complaint, of asking God to do something and, and complaining and issuing a complaint. But then this move from disorientation always then goes to a reorientation. Lament psalms almost always end in praise. They're wrestling deeply with hard stuff, but they almost always end in praise. So there's this move from disorientation to a new orientation that is marked by doxology and praise, by worship. What's super interesting is all of the lament psalms do this except one. One lament psalm does not end on a high note, and that's Psalm 88. Psalm 88 sounds like it was written by a teenage girl after her boyfriend broke up with her. The last line of Psalm 88 is, darkness is my only friend. Let's try singing that on a Sunday morning, you know what I mean? And so uh, we have this movement of orientation, disorientation, reorientation. This is good because our whole life is orientation, disorientation, reorientation. That's our whole life. Our whole life is constantly being disoriented by what we experience and trying to find our way with God back to reorientation. And the Psalms give us language. The Lament Psalms give us language for how to do that. So if you have an experience where you've woken up and looked in the mirror and said, my life really sucks right now, you are in good company. If you are trying to follow Jesus and you are mad at God because the things that you have experienced, you found the things that you've experienced while following the Lord disorienting. God has a way to help reorient us in the midst of our life. It's fascinating. So we're going to look at that, but I want to talk about one other aspect of lament Psalms, which Walter Brueggemann calls, and Dan, you can just leave this one up. Walter Brueggemann calls genuine covenant interaction. I was reading a little bit of him this week to try to get ready to teach this. And Walter Brueggemann talks about, um, how without lament psalms in our public life of worship, we have taught people to no longer engage authentically with God. 
And he calls that a genuine covenant interaction. Well, I found that interesting because last week we spent a lot of time trying to articulate this idea of covenant, right? That what binds us into relationship with God, what holds us in relationship with God is not our psychological certainty, that what holds us in relationship with God is a covenant, this thing that God initiates, and by his own oath, he swears to uphold his own promises in our relationship with him. And if that is true, if it is true that it is not psychological certainty that holds our relationship with God together, but it is covenant relationship, that it is God's promises that it is him doing these things, that means I can have doubts and still be in relationship with God. If my relationship with God is all about psychological certainty, when I have doubt, I no longer have a relationship with God. But if I'm in a covenant relationship where I'm hemmed in by the promises of God, I can yell, I can scream, I can get mad, and the relationship remains intact. And Walter Brueggemann would say lament when we get mad, when we get in God's face, actually makes our relationship with God deeper. It makes it more authentic. But a lot of us, because we believe faith is about psychological certainty, we don't think that we can yell at God. We don't think we can lament. We don't think we can get in God's face. And ultimately, that means we start believing that the only way God wants to hear from us is in praise and in thanksgiving. And so here's where that leaves us. Kyle and Steph have three miscarriages in a row. And evidently, the only way I'm ever supposed to talk to God is by saying thank you so much and singing happy songs. Your loved ones experience cancer. Your kids go wandering away from the Lord. You have really difficult relationships with your adult parents. You have really difficult relationships with your adult kids. And somehow, we believe that God is orchestrating all of these events, but he's a bully, and so I'm only ever supposed to say thank you for taking my lunch money. Thank you for doing those things. No, that's, that's what happens when we lose lament. What happens when we lose lament is we lose the ability to tell God how we really feel. And then what ends up happening, I I find, is we end up interacting with God in a fake way. Because if God ever only ever wants to hear praise and thanksgiving from me, if God only ever wants me to be happy, then I've got to stuff my bad emotions way down deep and just pretend to be happy all the time. And that idea is reinforced in church life in a couple ways. One, it's, it's reinforced in church life when we express doubt or grief or sorrow and the person we're talking to has this mini panic attack and they shut us up. And the version of that is when you start talking about grief, somebody cuts you off and says, well, praise the Lord, he's still on the throne. They cut you off and they say, well, God works in mysterious ways. They cut you off and say, well, all, all things work out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. They cut you off and they say, when you can't see his hand, trust his heart. And the subtle message of that is, please don't talk about this. Please don't talk about this. Then we have worship songs. It is very hard to find lament songs in modern contemporary worship. It is very difficult. It is super hard to find songs that are sad. Instead, we have more than enough songs that are happy. There's this hymn, um, Oh Happy Day, and the, the chorus of that says, I'm so happy, I'm so happy, I have the love of Jesus in my heart. Which begs me to ask the question, if I'm not happy, does that mean I don't have the love of Jesus in my heart? Julia found a song a few months ago, and the first line of it is, who is he that makes me happy? Who is he that brings me peace? And I had to have like a 20-minute theological like text back and forth with her because I was like, I just don't like that it uses the word happy. First of all, I think it's a stupid word. 
I don't think it captures what the Bible wants us, what it means. Uh, but I also, I also continually think as somebody who has come to church unhappy for most of the last three or four years, what happens if I'm singing only happy songs and I don't feel happy inside? Am I a bad Christian? Do I not have good faith? It is the lament psalms fueling my life of prayer that have been able to keep me coming to worship and not get ticked at all the songs we sing. Not at our worship team, but at the songs we sing and at the songs the church is writing. I think it's important to sing happy songs when we're sad because I think it reminds us of what is true. I think if we were only singing sad songs all the time, we'd all be wearing like really dark black skinny jeans and like sunglasses and be a very sad place. Um, <laughs> we would all dress like Aaron. <laughs> um, <laughs> instead, and so what happens is when our worship is only happy and we don't let each other kind of process our questions, we silence doubt, we silence grief. And the big problem with that is for the ancient Israelites, you could be poor, you could be without a, a house, you could have no food, you could have no kids to support you, you could have no spouse, but as long as you had a voice, you were still a person. That's where the tradition of lament came from, was if I lose my voice, I lose my personhood. And so when we silence doubt, and when we silence especially stomach doubt, and, and, and doubt of, and these big, huge questions about the character of God in the midst of our suffering. When we silence that, we're really saying, we need you to not be a person right now. And so we put a mask on and we come to church and we sing our happy songs. And as the scripture says, they praise me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. And the lament Psalms seek to give us words for our mouth that keep our hearts close to him. So let's look at an example of lament in Psalm chapter 13. Psalm chapter 13, <clears throat> I'd like to read it. I would like to read it how I think it's intended to be read. The biggest sin that you commit against the Bible, if you can sin against the Bible, is to read it boring. So Psalm 13 goes like this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me. Light up my eyes or I'm going to sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. See, it's angry. It's not cute. I'm going to sing. Gosh darn it. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. That's Psalm 13. This, I like teaching Psalm 13 when I start teaching lament because it's broken up into three sections. So you see the orientation, disorientation, reorientation happen really quickly. And the English translation of the text often kind of breaks it into three chunks, which is helpful. In, in Psalm 13, like many Psalms, the instance, the thing that caused a disorientation isn't explained. So we kind of just tune in and we're in the midst of somehow they've already made this move from orientation to disorientation. And then, and that's verses one through four. And then in verses five and six, we see this move back to praise and back to reorientation. And, and let me say this again. 
Why am I teaching you this? One, I want to give you the permission. That I want to make explicit the implicit permission the Bible gives you to yell at God. I want to make explicit the implicit permission that scripture gives you to get in God's face. Two, I want us to copy and paste the language of, of lament psalms, like Psalm 13, into our heads and into our hearts, so that when, not if, when we experience suffering, we know how to talk to God. We're not silenced. We know how to engage in genuine covenant interaction. We know what to do. And so what often happens is we think, well, I'm not in a season of suffering right now, so I don't have to pay attention to this, so this is my free nap. That's not how it works. What we do is we store up truth in our hearts, and we dig our foundation spiritually deeper so that when something happens, because it's going to happen, when something happens, you've had rebar put down into your soul, and you know how to talk to God. That's the goal today. I'm trying to give you some context for this kind of genre and some stuff like that. So look again at verses 1 and 2. I'm not going to yell anymore. How long, O oh Lord? Steph, like, got up with Jack and went into the other room because she knew I was going to do that. Um, how long, O oh Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Isn't that, that language? I love the poetry of the Bible. How long will you forget? How long will you hide your face? If you've walked through suffering while following Jesus, this is what it feels like. It feels like God has hidden his face. It feels like the sun went behind a cloud and it won't come out. Oh, it feels like living in Northeast Ohio. Cool. How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? Isn't that how that feels too? When you're in suffering and you pray and it feels like your prayers, like they're not even making it to the ceiling. They like kind of float up a foot and like thump on the floor, right? It feels like you are just left to take counsel inside yourself. And now your head is spinning and your gut is real tight and your heart is beating fast because you only have yourself to take counsel with. And all day your conversations are like, well, self, or it's like conversations with your stress and your stress is like, hey, how you doing? I got a plan for you, you know? Um, it, that's how it feels. It feels like we are defeated. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Notice a couple things in this verse. What is the most repeated phrase in verses one and two, church? How long? Authors of scripture don't repeat themselves uh, willy-nilly because you only had so much paper, so much ink, and so much pen. So when you did repeat yourself, it was to really make a point. And the psalmist is talking about how long four times. I mean, the psalmist hasn't been waiting a minute. The psalmist hasn't been waiting a day. The psalmist hasn't been waiting a week. The psalmist hasn't been waiting a couple months. Man, the psalmist has been waiting for a good long time for the Lord to show up. He's prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And basically, God's forgotten him. And basically, the Lord has hidden his face from him. There's this blessing in the book of Numbers. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. None of that. The Lord's face is hidden. And I want to give you some permission, too, when you're reading the Psalms. You know, it says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You know, when the psalmist was writing this, they probably thought of, like, some geopolitical enemy, some political adversary. Do you remember Mad Libs, right? Mad Libs, you know, the noun went to, you know, the noun adjective verb went to the noun with the noun to verb the adjective noun, right? You, you are given some permission as you're reading the Psalms to play Mad Libs. 
the prayer here is what is the enemy that you feel like has been exalted over you? It doesn't have to be geopolitical. It could be cancer. It could be depression. It could be busyness. It could be, what is it? My past. How long? This is the complaint. This is the complaint. This is getting up in the Lord's face and complaining. And then they make a plea in verses three and four. Complaint, plea, praise. Plea in verses three and four. Consider and answer me. Notice the intensity of the verbs. Consider, answer, light up. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. See, there's like a shame piece to this. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Right? This gets to the idea, this idea of it's me versus my enemies, and my enemies look like they're winning, kind of goes back to this idea of, like, if God is for us, who shall be against us? Like, Lord, if, if my enemies win, if they rejoice because I've been shaken, what that means is the Lord's reputation is on the line. Right? And so he's, he's calling the Lord to consider, to answer, to light up his eyes. This idea of eyes, it's, it's really interesting that it plays so heavily in this psalm. Um, because that word consider in Hebrew isn't just like, hey, recall, hey, think about me if you could, God. It's not like, hey, Lord, could you like write yourself a sticky note? Could you open up your Wonderlist app and add something there? Um, it, it, it's this, the word consider in Hebrew is something that you do with your eyeballs. It's a very physical word. Um, it says, uh, it, it, this word consider is with that which one does with the eye, embracing everything from a mere glance to a careful, sustained, and favorable contemplation. That's what he's asking for. He's saying, I feel forgotten, I feel overlooked, and I'm asking for a careful and sustained, what was that third word? I thought it was really important. Careful, sustained, and favorable contemplation. Man, that's what I need. When we're walking through our season of infertility and miscarriage, it was like the Lord kind of kept looking away. And what we wanted was careful, sustained, and, oh, by the way, favorable looking at us. That's what he's asking for. Because I think it's so easy to feel like God has taken his eye off the ball when we're in the midst of suffering. God must have forgotten. And I think that's, I think that's true when you're walking through, like, hugely profound, deep hurt and suffering. I think it's also true when your life is marked by, like, 20 small problems that you feel bad about complaining about but are there. I think when there's like 20 things kind of plaguing you and harassing you all at once, it's almost more tempting then to feel like God has forgotten you than this one big thing. Because it feels like, gosh, like I keep having to go to the doctor. My spouse keeps having to go to the doctor. My car broke down. I got my pay got cut. I threw out my back. I broke my, you know, when it's like 25 of those little things, it, it, it feels like, where's the Lord in this? And so the psalmist is saying, look, Answer. And do you notice he doesn't do what we do in prayer? First of all, he doesn't say please, does he? He doesn't say please and thank you. The psalmist doesn't talk to God like our moms taught us to be polite. And do you notice that he doesn't do Christian hedging? Lord, if it's your will, would you just answer my prayer? Lord, if, if, if it's a good thing to you, I, I mean, would you just... Lord, would you just move in their heart a little bit? Lord, would you just, do you know, we do that in prayer, and it's to shield ourselves from disappointment, by the way. The psalmist just says, hey, look, 
like you to pay attention to me. I'd like you to answer me. I'd like you to light up my eyes, and I'd like you to do that now. Now, Lord. But what's interesting about Psalm 13 is there's this intensity of the complaint. There's the intensity of the plea. And then he says, but. Hebrew word is vav. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. But the most important word in the Bible. But I have trusted in your steadfast love and your chesed. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I think there's an interesting tone to this, these verses that were similar in the song that we sang um, uh, just before we started. There wasn't a day, like that song, There Wasn't a Day You Weren't By My Side, There Won't Be a Day That You Let Me Fall, has this interesting, like, looking to the past, looking to the future, looking to the past, looking for the future. And you kind of see that a little bit in verse 5 and 6, right? Like, in the past I trusted, so I will rejoice. I will sing because in the past you've dealt bountifully with me. I think there's a, a tone of that. I think the poetry is beautiful. The Lord has dealt bountifully with me. The Lord isn't just giving scraps off the table. He's preparing a feast for us in the presence of our enemies. But notice this about, notice this about this, this psalm. We have no indication that the external circumstances have changed for the author. We have no indication that the external circumstances have changed for the author. His tone changed. How is that? How is that? Because in the process of lament, of naming the complaint and of making the plea, by pouring their heart out before the Lord, the psalmist with the Lord is able to sort through the chaos and the junk. And in my mind, it's almost like here's all of this stuff on the counter. It's, it's, very, um, it's very tidying up with Marie Kondo in this way. Here's all of this stuff that through a process of sorting out, we come back to joy. Here's all of this stuff. The Lord has forgotten me. The Lord has hidden his face from me. My enemy's exalting over me. They're going to rejoice because I'm shaken, all of these things. And instead, in the process of kind of naming all of these things, they're able to come back to genuine, authentic praise. They had a genuine interaction with God. They had a genuine covenant interaction with God. They made their voice heard. And in the process, they have a renewed and deeper trust in the Father, despite the fact that external circumstances haven't changed. And my experience is I watch a lot of people trying to live in verses 5 and 6 without walking through verses 1 through 4. And the way that we walk in the truth of lament and the way that we kind of develop an appropriate relationship with the crap we're going through as we follow Jesus is by working through one through four, by making our complaint and our plea heard so that we can move to praise. And if you don't, if you just want to live in verses five and six all the time, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be fake with God. You're going to be fake with God. You're going to stuff down all that negative stuff because God doesn't want to hear that. And you're going to come to church and you're going to put on your happy Christian face, which is super easy to do for about an hour and 15 minutes once a week. It's harder to do that when you go to a dinner at somebody's house once a week, by the way. It's relieving. We come to church, we keep this mask on. And we see these people down the road from us who are having like genuine experiences of the Lord's presence. 
they walk with God in a way that it almost is like they're friends. They're so comfortable in their walk with God, and we actually kind of get mad at them. And we think, well, there's all this sin in their life, and they voted for, insert person here, so they can't really be a genuine Christian. And so we kind of stay in the shallow end of pretending. And I think from time to time you have a genuine interaction with God. He loves you. But you're stuck while the others that are, that those who walk through verses one through four who really get up in God's face experience that. Here's, here's what I'm telling you today, my friends. To follow Jesus is to sing a song of victory in a minor key. To follow Jesus is to sing a song of victory in a minor key. And the key being minor does not diminish the victory. It actually makes it sweeter. When that chord resolves at the end and it makes our ear go, ah, right. It actually makes the song sweeter. To follow Jesus, to walk with God is to sing a song of victory in what looks like utter defeat. To walk with God is to sing a song of provision in what looks like a famine. Uh, to sing, uh, to follow Jesus is to sing a song of companionship in the midst of utter and total loneliness. To follow Jesus is to sing a song of strength in the midst of what looks like overwhelming weakness. Because this is what Paul says. He says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? He says, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And he goes on to say, so I am convinced nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Here's what I want you to know is Jesus wants you Jesus wants to have a genuine and authentic relationship and interaction with you, with your failure and your doubt and your mistakes and your skepticism. He wants your heart, every little nook and cranny, every part. And he wants to teach you a sing, to sing a song of victory in a minor key. Let me pray. God, in a minute, we're just going to offer you our hearts. We're going to offer you ourselves. And so here's, church, what I would like you to do is I would like you to bring to mind your complaint. I would like you to bring to mind that area in which you are waiting for God to move. I'd like you to bring to God the place where you feel forgotten and overlooked, the place that you feel defeated. Now I would like you to get up in God's face. I would like you to make your plea, and I would like you to not use words like please, thank you, just, or maybe. Tell God to go do something. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to engage in some genuine and authentic praise. But first, Father, for my friends that are waiting in this place, God, I pray that those who wait upon the Lord would be renewed with your strength today. Lord Jesus, I pray for our complaints of deep bitterness, our complaints of waiting, our complaints where you feel hard to find. 
God, I pray that you would move, that you would answer, that you would look on us in a steady and favorable way. I pray that your face would shine upon us in the midst of our darkness. Lord, we offer you our hearts as full and empty, as bitter and sweet, as tired and energized as they are. Because you're worthy of us and you love us. I'm so thankful. Would you stand if you're able? We're going to sing some true things together. Here's something that's true. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell could separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. May you walk this week hearing truth spoken over you in the midst of your grief. May you know the voice of Jesus. Love you so much. We'll see you next week.